the scripture today, a little bit late, uh, is from Isaiah fifty-two thirteen to fifty-three twelve. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and teens will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He drew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide his spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We are right now trying to tell the whole story of the gospel uh, from beginning to end, going through one passage at a time and talking through what each one contributes to that story over the course of 14, 15 weeks, something like that. <laughs> um, if you missed any, um, any sermons or anything like that and you want to uh, get caught up on them, um, they are on Apple Pod- Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And also, um, if you ask Kim, then she can send you um, a transcript of them. So. Um, yeah, so the hope of this series is not only that we'll better understand the story of what we believe, but that we'd be inspired by the beauty of that story, and that it would motivate us to find our role in it. Uh, we started with God's covenant with Abraham, which was meant to solve the problem of sin. Sin was causing humans to be exiled from God. Since God was no longer present with humans, it was unmaking the world, causing curses to abound. But God said that he would instead be with Abraham and his family. He'd be present with them, and he would bless them, and through them he would begin to remake the world. That was demonstrated all over the Old Testament, especially in the story of Balaam, which showed that not only God would abundantly bless Israel, even though they were actively sinning against him, um, but that a king coming out of Israel would one day unite the whole world. God made a covenant with David that said that one of his sons would always be king on the throne of Israel. And that prophesied king that unites the world would come from his family. We saw that God gave Israel a law, 
which was basically rules for how to make it so that God could stay with them, to, to live among them. Israel completely failed to keep that law and couldn't even do the most basic parts of it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, finally, God gave them the same punishment that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. He exiled them away from the promised land. And that brings us to this chapter. The prophet Isaiah is talking to Israel at about 725 BC. At this point, Israel has already split up into two different kingdoms in the north and the south. The northern kingdom is super duper sinful. And so God is sending them into exile through the Assyrians in about three years. The Assyrians come and they deport them away and they settle them somewhere else. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom is only very sinful, and so God miraculously saves them from being uh, exiled. But Isaiah says that even though these guys manage to escape, in about 150 years, everyone will be exiled just like the law said. Sure enough, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom is sent into exile into Babylon. Like we've been saying over the past few weeks, the natural result of sin is that we are exiled from God. And this is exactly what happens to the Israelites. That's really bad news, because without God, the world falls apart, so that all the evil that we see in the world, it comes from exile and sin. If you just know this about the book of Isaiah, you might think that the whole thing is a bit of a downer. Your country is about to be invaded, and you're going to be deported off to a foreign land doesn't exactly sound like good news. Uh, But there's also a number of extremely hopeful passages in this book that peek out from all the judgment. In Isaiah 19, the nations of Egypt and Assyria, who were the unstoppable superpowers that always threatened Israel, come together and regularly to Jerusalem to worship God. In other words, somehow through Israel going into exile, the nations come together and are blessed by God, just like the covenant with Abraham said. It's a reverse Babel. Instead of being scattered and speaking all different languages when the nations try to steal the presence of God, Now instead, all the people come together and worship God in one place in Jerusalem, and God is with them and was present with them willingly. Somehow, God's covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled even in this exile, even as God was punishing Israel, breaking that covenant. And of course, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. God loves to kill two birds with one stone. (laughs) He corrects his people, but also blesses them all at the same time. Remember how Joseph is sold into slavery perhaps in part so he can learn how not to be haughty like he was with his brothers, but ultimately that's what saves him, his brothers, and all of Egypt from famine. But Isaiah even goes several steps farther than any book in the Bible to this point. Not only will all the nations be united by the exile, which was the seemingly pie-in-the-sky hope that every book of the Bible had so far, that everyone would come together, uh, but the whole earth would actually be put right Everything sad would become untrue. Listen to some of these beautiful visions that Isaiah has all throughout the book. He says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion when the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young, lie, their young will lie together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, 
and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's a lot of passages, but they really paint an interesting picture. This isn't just there and back again. This is the most hopeful the entire Bible has ever been so far. And it gives a beautiful glimpse of the world made right. Israel's exile won't just end in a glorious return for them, but the whole earth will be remade. The problem of chaos and evil and meaninglessness and God's presence being lost will finally be solved. Normally, when we read this passage, we think of it as a direct prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross. And that's mostly true, but there's a little layer of profound complexity that that misses. This servant has already been identified in the context of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.3 says, You are my servant, comma, Israel, comma, in whom I will display my splendor. The servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 isn't some person who will be born in a few centuries. It's the nation of Israel. Like we said a few weeks ago, Israel is meant to save the whole world. And that's what's going to happen with with this exile. And all these things are going to come to pass. But Israel also needed rescuing. God would apparently do that all in one fell swoop. He would save Israel from other sins and from their exile. And during the exile, they would also bear the sins of the whole world, so that everything that God had promised since he had made the deal with Abraham would come true. Israel's appearance really was disfigured, and its form was marred. It did grow up before the Lord like a spindly shoot. It was despised and rejected by mankind. Though it was God's will to give up his beloved Israel as a sin offering for the world, nevertheless, Israel would survive the exile and see its offspring grow. It all fits. But there's two main things that make it really hard to believe that this could be talking about Israel. One is that it says, my servant will act wisely. You really think Israel's going to do that? Then you look at what happened to Israel after the exile, and it really wasn't the glorious return and the new heavens and the new earth like it was expected. Israel returns and they're totally dependent on a foreign kingdom, not one of David's sons. The new temple that's built clearly does not have God in it in Ezra 3. They were in the land, but it didn't seem like God was back with them. Eventually, Daniel says that this exile wasn't going to be 70 years, but like, Jer- like Jeremiah said, but 70 times 7 years, 490 years. Apparently, they have failed in their role to suffer on behalf of the world and bring back the presence of God. Malachi ends the Old Testament by prophesying longingly that the Lord whom you seek will return suddenly to his temple because he wasn't there. But if you remember the past couple of weeks, we talked about how God had made kingship as a special covenant within God's chosen family. Just like Israel represented the world to God, 
When God established kingship, it meant that the king represented Israel to God. Wherever the king went, Israel went. If the king followed God's law, the whole nation did, and Israel was successful. If the king didn't, then Israel didn't follow the law, and things went poorly, which happened much more often. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell where, that, where, where what the king is supposed to be ends and what Israel is supposed to be begins. This principle is actually really key to understanding this passage. When we get to the New Testament, we'll see that the writers are at pains to identify Jesus as the king, is, is finally that, what the king who was always supposed to be, just like we saw last week. Uh, Jesus was finally the obedient son, the son of David, who would bring order back into the world and abolish the forces of evil. But they are also constantly saying that Jesus is everything that Israel was supposed to have been. Jesus perfectly followed the law the way that Israel didn't, so that all the nations would, co- would come together and see how great God is, and so the presence of God would finally be restored to the earth. In doing that, he fulfilled the law and all the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham that when he came to the world. On the cross, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, not only for the nations, but for Israel too, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Just like Israel is meant to, even when he suffered this exile and death, he prolonged his days. He saw the light of life and was satisfied in his resurrection. Therefore, God made him high and lifted up. And he was given a portion among the great, and he divided the spoils of the strong. It all fits. Both Israel and Jesus are the servant in this passage. Jesus experienced exile in the Garden of Gethsemane, so that the presence of God could be restored just like in the Garden of Eden. But unlike Israel, who suffered exile in Assyria and Babylon, he was faithful as he bore that suffering. In Jesus, both the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David are finally fulfilled, so that God can bless the world and bring it back to the way he had intended all along. Now, God's plan to remake the whole world was accomplished. And since Jesus was an Israelite, that means that God's promise to Abraham to save the world through his family really did become, come true. It's kind of like if I said LeBron James and I combined for 1,700 points in the 2021 NBA season. It is technically true. I had zero zero points, and my pal LeBron had 1,700. (laughs) But God loved the world so much that his chosen people, failing, meant that he became a human, he became an Israelite, as part of his chosen people, and did it for them. Though Jesus was, through Jesus, not only was Israel rescued, but the whole world was rescued, and it is in the process of being put right until he comes again. What that also means, though, is that the bearing of the suffering of the world isn't simply the job of Jesus, which means that it's all done and we can wash our hands of it. It was originally the job of God's people, and it still is. Jesus bore our suffering, but he did that as our representative. But if he's our representative, then that means that we need to try to live up to that represent the one who represents us. God's beautiful plan to end the exile and restore his presence to the world involves us sponging up the world's heartache and releasing it onto Jesus because he can handle it. It was the job of Israel to bear the suffering of the world and that through their sufferings, they would heal the world. But we are now part of that community, which Jesus created in the new covenant. We are the new Israel, and so we take on a very similar role. Together with Jesus, we are meant to bear the suffering of the world. 
When we see people suffering, we hear their stories, we love them, and we cry with them. When we see the poor and the sick, we help them and we bear their burdens. When we see outcasts, that means we become their friends, and so become outcasts ourselves. Because that's what Jesus did, and that's what we do. There's a reason that Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world. When pandemics came on entire cities, anyone who could afford it peaced out and ran to the country. But Christians came into the city and cared for the sick. Christians were proud of being a religion for women and slaves, and so they bore the reproach that they did. They didn't grow because they grabbed for power, but because they bore witness to the same love with which God made the world, forgave its sins, and died. And that's what it means to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's what it means, as Paul says, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what it means, as Hebrews says, to go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. That's why Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, you do to me. But if you remember that you are bearing the world's suffering, in my experience, that makes it so much more bearable. Last week, we talked about how suffering often seems meaningless in the light of sin. One day, God will finally defeat this meaninglessness when he comes again. But in the meantime, he's given us this gift of meaning in our suffering. There's a reason now that we suffer. And it's not because God is fickle or doesn't care, but because as Christians, we bear the suffering of the world along with Christ. And so when you're having a hard time making sense of what you're going through, try to think of who you're suffering for. Maybe a loved one is going through a really tough time and you're worried about them. You're suffering so that they don't have to suffer alone. Maybe you go to sit with someone at school or at work who isn't very popular. That's going to mean both that you don't get to sit with the people you actually want to sit with, but also that you run the risk of being labeled the way that they're labeled. They might say, really? You're friends with them? And you're going to have the temptation to say something like, ew, no, I just felt sorry for them. That way, they don't think of you the way that they think of them. You're probably embarrassed, and that'll make you feel so much better. But bearing the suffering of the world means saying, heck yeah, I'm friends with him, and letting the chip fall where they may. Whatever happens, you're suffering so they don't have to suffer so much. And that's really what forgiveness is, too. It's a costly act of suffering, even though you don't deserve it, so that the person who does deserve it might not have to suffer so much. In a lot of ways, it feels even worse, because in the back of your mind, you know that you shouldn't have to suffer like this. It's not just that the person you're suffering for is innocent and gets a bad rap. Let's say someone deems your car and they offer to pay for it, but you say, don't worry about it, I forgive you. When you say that, what it means is either you're going to pay for the scratch or you're just going to live with it and your car's going to be a little deemed up. Either way, you're the one who pays the price for the other person's mistake because that's fundamentally what forgiveness is. That's true for practically every other kind of forgiveness too. Imagine that someone really hurts you emotionally and they apologize to you and you forgive them. There's going to come a time when you see them again and you're really going to want to hold that over their heads. You rightfully have power over them because they sinned against you and you're going to want to use that to get even pretty much every time you see them for a long while. When I was in college, uh, me and all my roommates except for one were having a really exhausting week since we were all part of the same extracurricular. 
One time, we finally came home at around midnight and found that the toilet in the bathroom had overflowed and there was poop all over the floor. Our other roommate had just gone to bed afterward and called the campus plumber, thinking that the plumber would clean up the poop. Obviously, that's not what plumbers do, so (laughs) it was up to us to drive to Walmart after midnight to buy cleaning supplies to clean this bathroom when we had to get up at 6 the next morning. And we had nothing to do with messing it up in the first place. It wasn't a fun time. Uh, so we were a little bit annoyed, but my roommate, who's really a good guy, apologized up and down for it. He did everything to make it right. He even bought us donuts and everything. <laughs> At that point, I had a choice. I could, one, let it go and be like Christ, knowing that he's every, done everything he, he could to make it right. Or I could, two, hold it over his head, bring it up every, whenever he's annoyed that I leave a mess, make jokes all the time, call him poop boy, and tell the whole story to an entire con- church congregation three years later. <laughs> you can guess which one I did. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, it was way easier to hold it over his head, though. If I just let it go, then I was the one who had to pay for his mistake. And I get exactly nothing out of it. I don't even have blackmail material. <laughs> There's a reason that forgiveness is hard. It's because you have to pay the price for something that you didn't do, and it's not fair. It's saying, I myself will bear that suffering, which I want to inflict to get even. I would rather suffer myself than let this relationship be damaged by what they did to me. And I won't allow them to suffer for what they have done. It's hard. But here's the thing. When you're in the position of forgiving, you're the one who's been righteous and the other person hasn't. At least in this relationship, you're the better person and you're completely innocent. While you're thinking about that, which you are, it's easy to imagine that's true all the time. But it's not. You're a sinner too, but Jesus forgave you. Forgiveness is hard, but it's what Jesus calls us to do because that's what he did for us. Forgiveness always involves suffering, and he suffered immensely to forgive us when he was the one person who really didn't deserve to suffer. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his, our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing our sufferings on the cross. We needed your forgiveness, or the world would fall apart, and you paid the full price of it. Help us to follow your example and go out into the world and sponge up their suffering for your sake. In your name, amen.